So Money Episode 952, Jennifer Brown, author of Inclusion, Diversity, the New Workplace, and the Will to Change. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I think what we woke up to understand late 2016 and 2017 with the Women's March and and everything that has happened subsequently is um, MLK Jr. says the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I think what we've woken up, I love that quote, but what we've woken up to is it does not bend on its own. Mm -hmm. It literally needs to be bent. How can companies thrive as the world evolves and the marketplace changes? Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnish Tarabi. Jennifer Brown is here and she's on a mission to help businesses become more inclusive by creating a workplace where employees can thrive by being who they are. She believes that when employees are able to bring their true self to work, they're able to motivate and contribute in a way that will boost the bottom line, but it's not always so easy, right? Jennifer is the founder of Jennifer Brown Consulting. She's an award-winning entrepreneur, speaker, diversity and inclusion consultant, and author of the book, Inclusion, Diversity, the New Workplace, and the Will to Change. Here we go. Here's Jennifer Brown. Jennifer Brown, welcome to So Money, and congratulations on your new book, How to Be an Inclusive Leader. So important, so important now. That's right. Thank you, Farnoosh. Yeah, it's going to be... I hope it really makes an impact and finds its way into the right hands. <laughs> uh, any hand, everyone any needs hand. this book, right? <laughs> I think we all, no matter how confident we are in who we are, when we get to work, something changes, something shifts. We feel like we can't bring our whole selves to work. It's either a distraction or we're not going to be accepted or it's not in alignment with the culture or we're worried about discrimination or all of the above. And so... Your goal is to encourage people to not only bring their whole self to work, to be their authentic self at work, but also for the work, for the, for the people at work, your colleagues, your coworkers, your managers, your peers to be advocates for you. Because ultimately, what is on the line? What is the price? So the price is, you know, the fact that we are not seeing an improvement in the numbers of, for example, women and people of color, just to name two, um, that are moving into the executive levels of leadership, just to pick one example. Um, And when I look at that, I know so much about why that's happening. I think most leaders probably don't know why that's happening. And actually, most leaders would probably say, what do you mean we have a problem and we're losing people? Like, we're, we're doing fine. So, but what I see, you know, is a, for each person, a sort of history of having to cover at work, um, of putting a lot of energy towards belonging or trying to belong, um, of not having, you know, enough role models that share an identity, um, enough sponsors that are pulling that person up through the pipeline and into those bigger jobs. And so honestly, that combined with a lot of microaggressions and casual comments and unexplored unconscious bias that people hear on a day-to-day basis, it just wears on you. And at some point, 
uh, people give up. They say, I'm going to go seek, I'm either going to become an entrepreneur, or I'm going to change companies to a company that values this in a more proactive way and actually walks the talk. So the price is losing that whole generation of talent that you spent so much to hire that, you know, you've, you've managed to keep for so long and then just to have them get so fatigued that they just can't take it anymore. And I, you just don't, there's so many reasons not to want that. I think the other problem is, we, you know, organizations workforce needs to mirror the marketplace mm-hmm. that the organization does business in. And so the more folks that leave that look like the rest of the world, the more difficult it is to diversify, you know, the particularly leadership, but the whole top half of organizations. And so it's a real problem because you then don't have all of those diverse perspectives and identities at the table, making business decisions every day about the products and services that are going to resonate with the world, right. yeah, which the newsflash yeah, is diverse. Yeah. So the product's not going to resonate. Mm-hmm. And frankly, as consumers, there's so much transparency now. You can know, you can find out with the click of a button who's on the board of your company, right. who is making decisions, even though maybe you don't have a consumer facing product, but you're, you're in business and you are taking consumer dollars. We can vote with our with our dollars now. Companies know this. I mean, it's not rocket science. Why aren't why is it so hard to move the needle? Why aren't we seeing more women at the top? Why aren't we seeing more people of color? Why aren't we seeing people feeling comfortable to say, I'm gay and I'm yes, and I work next to you in this cubicle and guess what? <laughs> the work's still gonna be excellent. You had a story of your own to share, but why aren't companies waking up to this? Yeah, well, that's the question, isn't it? Um, You know, I think people get really comfortable and they are not for whatever reason, even though we've built the business case and there's so much documentation about why this is this is a problem and a challenge that's affecting business. There's still, I think, tremendous denial um, amongst decision makers about how on fire this really is. Um, honestly, and I know that's a very depressing answer, but there's a lot of denial. There's a lot of unawareness that people even have a problem or that organizations have a problem. And I know that might amaze you and your listeners, but <laughs> honestly, if you stop somebody that, you know, has a, is a professional at a certain level as, and is a leader and you say, tell me about the gender pay gap, chances are they're not going to know about it. And they're definitely not going to be able to define it. And they certainly won't know it in their own organization, in their own teams. And so we're literally, we are literally like rewinding, I think. And this is hence the first couple chapters in my new book. We're rewinding to building awareness that there is a, there is a gap and that there is um, an experience gap. It's not just a pay gap or a retention mm-hmm. gap. There is a, an engagement and a cultural experience gap in the same company that's radically different for certain people of, diff- of certain identities. And until we can really explain this in a way that captures hearts and minds of people who in power and who have influence, we can keep pushing from below which is what I, you know, I know all those people and I'm, I'm, I try to be a voice for them and for us, honestly, cause I'm, you know, in the LGBTQ community, you know, and I'm a woman in business and so certainly can push with people, but I can also get into some rooms and push on behalf of because of my ethnicity, you know, which is not fair and not right, Mm -hmm. but people may be relatively more comfortable with me the second I walk in the door and be more willing to listen to me talk about these things. Right. So even in that example, it's disturbing, you know, that there is that unchecked, um, 
a bias towards, as a positive bias, perhaps towards somebody like me, notwithstanding my gender, which actually may hurt me and my LGBT status, which if they knew would hurt me as well. <laughs> well, that's but it, like, right? People are afraid. They're af- like yeah. that, being hurt. What does that mean? You know, mm. that means, you know, not elevating in your career, being subjugated, being left out of meetings, mm-hmm. fired. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of fear and it's substantiated. So how do you get the courage? How did you get the courage to be you at work? You know, I think honestly, the business case really helped me feel more confident in my own identity and the reason why my voice is needed. When I really started to put the pieces together, um, back in the day, I was very involved in all the LGBT employee resource groups getting set up at a lot of the, mainly it was banks because I'm in New York. So there's a lot of financial services and professional consulting firms here. And um, those were the first kinds of companies, believe it or not, that were setting up these groups and they've been at it for more than 20 years. And when I first realized that there's a business case for me and there's a business case for our community, you know, whether it's buying power, like it's a, you know, Bank of America trying to market to you with the right imagery and the right messaging and in a respectful way, um, in a way that shows they've done their homework. Um, I realized that that's, that's a source of knowledge that's very valuable, actually. And this is where I think we have to kind of shift in our heads to we've inherited stereotypes and bias about ourselves. And we've, you know, we've got to really, those of us who are in marginalized identities or underrepresented identities, like have to really think about and know that we are needed we are necessary. Uh, we have a diverse lens, which is better for problem solving at work. And by the way, we are the future of talent. We may not be the present of talent in certain levels of the company. And I always want to say that because in the aggregate, you may have total gender parity in your organization. The question we always look at is where, where in the organization? I mean, do you have all of your people of color or vast majority in a certain call center or in a certain part of the country? You know, you can't look at metrics across the board. You need to divide them up and kind of look at them case by case. And you also need to look at the seniority of the data. But um, but I think that all of the dots came together for me when I realized I have a voice that matters. I have a lens that's valuable. And telling my story may not only shift my own, the way I'm seen in terms of confidence and not hiding in plain sight, but it will also provide um, a potential role model to people who think that they don't see anyone that looks like them. And to me, legacy is very motivating. And, you know, when I think about legacy and I'm not, this is not maybe not true for everybody, but when I think about that, it becomes a very clear choice whether I bring my full self to as many situations as possible, because I know that I could be impacting somebody in a really profound way by doing so. So it's not about my comfort. It's not about my mood. You know, it's about my commitment to my authenticity. So I know that that's, it's very pie in the sky, but I do, I do think if people knew what I knew, they would feel more important and they would feel kind of empowered with who they are and what they know. And they would also know that the future is on their side. What I love about your book is that it is really user-friendly. So maybe, yes, pie in the sky right now We as we were talking, but one of the steps that you include in your book is about advocacy. And so again, whether you're C-suite level or entry level, we can all participate in this movement and in, t- in moving the needle. Um, so for people, for people listening, how can everybody go to work tomorrow and help to create a more inclusive environment at work and maybe even be an advocate for someone directly or indirectly? 
Yeah, that is exactly why I structured the book the way that I did with four stages. So we we all travel this continuum from unawareness or resistance to becoming aware or awakening to facts or um, both qualitative and quantitative. Um, and then we activate around that awareness, which is stage three, and then we become advocate level, which is stage four. So I think the first thing to think about is where am I in this journey and in this continuum and being really honest about that. Uh, it helps people to kind of unlock the the stuckness to say, um, now I know where I am. It allows people to breathe a bit, relax a little bit, say, and also to say, oh gosh, other people are in these places too. Like I'm not alone or I'm not sort of hopelessly clueless or ignorant or you know, that I don't know about this or I don't care about that. So um, we have a lot of, I think there's a lot of people that feel very left out or ashamed about their lack of knowledge on this topic. Um, and so the book really endeavors to take that out of the equation and very much invite people to just get on the train. And then I always think of it as, you know, even if you just hang on to the caboose for a little while or for a long time, it's okay. You know, as long as you're on the train and maybe, you know, you'll move forward a car at a time and maybe it will take you a while. Um, this kind of thing is not a journey that can be rushed uh, because if you rush it and you, I've seen sort of people say, for example, I'm an ally, you know, sort of as if you've arrived and we like to say in our world that you're only an ally when somebody who needs allyship calls you an ally, you know, and that's a real honor and it's a privilege to be called that and it's something that you earn and you never stop earning. So the journey of allyship and proving yourself as an inclusive leader uh, starts with small actions like educating yourself, um, doing your own homework, not relying on others to do all the work and the teaching for you. So sometimes somebody will come to me and say, tell me everything about the LGBTQ experience. I want to be an ally, <laughs> you know, and I'll say, <laughs> you have like so much work to do and you should use me actually as someone to to answer maybe some really difficult questions that you, your own time and research hasn't been able to answer. Like that's the best way to use me mm -hmm. is, um, you know, don't abuse my time when the information is publicly available. Um, and so that's, that's, if you can Google it. Yeah. yeah. Google it, please. <laughs> Google it first. <laughs> watch some films, like watch, yeah. I mean, consume media, read articles. Like there's so much out there about the business case and about like what women of color struggle with in the workplace. I mean, there's so much that's documented. I mean, you should be armed with all of that. And then when you come to your allyship, you're informed and you're not being lazy. You're not being a lazy ally or a paper ally, as my friend calls it. Um, and then and then it goes from there, you know, and there's there's sort of uh, great things and also pitfalls that can happen along the way. And, you know, there's a lot of fear around this conversation, around saying the wrong thing, around intruding into a space that's not yours, um, of talking about privilege in a way that doesn't make you feel bad um, because it's kind of been weaponized a bit. So, yeah, there's a lot mm -hmm. of um, twists and turns <laughs> as we go well, through the continuum. You know, compared to where the workplace was even just 10 years ago, 15 years ago, in some ways, in some measures, we've come a long way um, on this journey. There's a lot of work left to be done. But when you look back through time, Jennifer, what were some catalysts for change and what can we learn from those moments? Hmm. Well, um, I always point to, uh, I'll just do the recent ones. I, I do think that the political climate of the last couple of years has very much galvanized the corporate conversation uh, because corporations are are sort of managing an opposite dynamic, which is that their workforce is diversifying, their marketplace is diversifying, they're finding themselves behind the curve, 
So they're actually pushing like harder than ever before when it comes to diversity and inclusive cultures and creating a sense of belonging. And, and they know that the demographics are dictating that this should be a priority. So that's, that is, I, I've really seen an acceleration there. And I like to say, I think what we woke up to understand late 2016 and 2017 with the Women's March and and everything that has happened subsequently is um, MLK Jr. says the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I think what we've woken up, I love that quote, but what we've woken up to is it does not bend on its own. Mm-hmm. It literally needs to be bent and it can't just be bent by a couple of us. And it can't just be bent by people that have the least power in the equation. And so that would be my kind of asterisk and God, God knows I shouldn't be asterisking Martin Luther King Jr. But, <laughs> but, but it's, it's, it takes all of us and, and inclusive cultures actually don't just happen because of good intentions, because of people who are like, oh, it'll be fine. And I'm, I vote, you know, I have progressive values or I, you know, women love working in our organization and, you know, we get in there and we find a very different story often. And it's very confronting for a leader to have their, realize that their intent has not actually resulted in any sort of impact. And so we've got to stop believing that good intentions constitutes inclusion. Um, And we've got to realize that like good cultures take work and they take work from all of us, not just those of us who are most, you know, indirectly or directly affected by exclusion. Um, So I would say, so that dynamic, uh, Me Too, obviously, Mm -hmm. huge, huge process of giving many people their voice and making us realize what's okay and what's not okay and we shouldn't put up with it. Um, And then Black Lives Matter and the whole like, you know, awareness that was raised around police brutality and certain effective communities, I think, I think we're not, we're not, not talking about race now, but I can say that it's still an uncomfortable and avoided conversation in my experience in most many workplaces in the corporate world. So, so normalizing talking about difference is, is I think what's ahead of us. Funny enough, LGBTQ has become almost fashionable like and comfortable for so many allies to talk about. I'd like to see the same thing happen with male allies. I'd like to see the same thing happen for allies for multicultural talent. Um, because we all need to understand each other's experience and to support each other. And we all, we all can be doing a lot more of that. Who's doing it. Who's doing a great job. Who, who, what companies are you citing now as case studies as like, here's a great company that perhaps, pivoted or made a conscious effort to become more inclusive or, or was has always been um, on this mission and and that we can you know use as uh, models for this framework yeah I mean rather than name companies because some of them are my clients and I never know what I can really share <laughs> but um, some of the big banks do some incredible things like one that we work with uh, does a high potential development program for all of their diverse talent at a certain level. So they're developing in this very concrete way, um, leaders of color, leaders with disabilities, LGBTQ potential, high potential leaders, um, veteran leaders. And we teach a bunch of these programs and you can just see, you can see how transformative it is for people who've never been in a room that's felt really safe and where they have felt surrounded by people that share their story. And so, you know, pound for pound, it's actually one of the most amazing ways to shore up your talent, your talent pipeline for people that frankly are at risk um, and that you need as an institution to make sure they stay and make sure that they're not just resting in place, but make sure that they feel great 
about where they work and that they feel supported. So I really, I love that, that concept. And I think that could be done a lot more. Um, some companies are assigning executive leaders to sponsor, um, certain, um, underrepresented talent, like high potential talent directly. So sponsoring means, you know, you literally are sharing your social capital with someone you're vouching for them. You are making sure they're taking the right kind of assignments in order to move up in the pipeline. And sponsorship has been shown, uh, to be the a number one differentiator for, uh, that, that would pull the most talent up and forward if it happened more often versus now where it really happens very informally and almost by accident. So I think organizations, those with power need to be in a relationship with those who the company is saying they want to develop and that power sharing needs to really happen. And then I'll give you a last example. Um, Believe it or not, there is an organization, there are several of my clients who they send their white male leaders off to a full week program off site uh, called White Men as Full Diversity Partners. And it's an entire deep dive into the um, experience of being a white man in leadership. Um, and it's a discussion of race and gender and your role as a leader and unconscious bias and um, what is inclusive behavior, what do inclusive behaviors look like? And and people come back really transformed. And so that I, I consider that to be really cutting edge. It's not widespread, but I do know that I have a couple clients who have sent hundreds of leaders through it. And it has it has truly created change from the top, not just in a sort of cognitive sense, but in a visceral sense for leaders. And that's what you need is that blend of kind of head and heart to really make it stick. Wow. So really investing in your employees' growth and allowing them to like just feel feel like, feel like they're safe, like in a safe place, like their employer understands them. We know there are a lot of questions that we haven't tackled, but we want to grow and we want to invest in your growth. Mm -hmm, That's right. And then, and then of course there's all the, the companies who are doing these amazing ads, right. That are, we, in my community anyway, we just, we just love it. I mean, the Gillette ad about toxic masculinity just took my breath away. I mean, it made me cry. It was like, I've never seen this topic talked about in the public. Um, And that was just an incredible moment, I think, for a lot of people to feel heard around our concerns and, and men feeling heard. I mean... The, the man box, as Mark Green and um, Tony Porter call it, is so confining to men as well as harmful to them. It's not healthy. And so this workplace that was built for a very small subset of our population, I would argue, doesn't even work for them anymore. You know, and, and it, it never did. So we just really have to radically rethink you know, the norms rather than conforming to, and I think that we as women, for example, think, oh, you know, I need to fit in or like play the game the way that it's played. And, you know, we can spend our energy doing that. And we, but we can also question how it's how business has been done and say, this is, you know, it needs to look different, at least look very different, you know, and let's not, let's not keep around any of these old behaviors and norms, you know, let's really start to challenge them. So I think companies on like Nike is another one that has some incredible ads that are so empowering. I think that the tricky part of course is when you have ads like that and you'd really take a stand on a social issue that impacts your employees, your employees get really excited. And I think certain customers get really excited. Um, others do not. Um, and you also have to be walking the talk. I think you yes. talked about transparency and like you can't put that out there and then not be doing the work internally in your culture. Well, you know, you saw a little bit of that around like 
Pride Month and mm-hmm. all of these businesses with their rainbow flags. And yeah. on the one hand, that's amazing. On the other hand, there were some snickers, you know, like people like, well, they're doing that just because they want to seem like they're supporting the LGBTQ community, but, and they may be, and, and it's probably not ill intentioned, but they have so much other work to do when it comes to so much else, you know, like <laughs> their fees are horrendous. They're not yeah. inclusive. They're not, you know, internally, they're not diverse. Um, and so what do you make of that? I mean, is it fair to judge a company's stance if they're not a hundred percent progressive? You know, like where do we draw the line and where do we question the authenticity? Yeah, it's a great question. We call it pink washing. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that question was loud and clear more than I've ever heard it in this year's World Pride, for sure. I've never seen so many storefronts with rainbow flags. I mean, if, yeah. if it was 50% a year ago, it was 100% this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so everyone's gotten the memo about the gay dollar, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's cynical, but it's true. Uh, but yeah, but to your point, that does not speak to all your other practices? And is it just convenient to jump into the fray and not really do the work? And to our point earlier around paper allyship versus real allyship, you can apply that to a company too. It's not just individuals, right? So um, it's made up of a lot of different actions, both public and private that are undertaken by the company. And you should be able to stop, you know, an LGBTQ employee of that company at any moment and say, you know, what is it? Do you feel comfortable bringing your false self to work? You know, why or why not? And does middle management get it? And what's your day-to-day reality like? And what do you hear or not hear from leadership in terms of what they, how they talk about this, whether they talk about it? Um, so, so there's, there's so many ways to look at a big organization. There's so many vantage points and there's, it's not an easy answer. I would say I give personally major points for trying And what I look for is you've got some of the pieces in place. And what I really need from our clients is we want those other pieces. We want to know more about where are we missing missing the, 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 the best solution, you know, where, where are we lagging behind our competitors? Where could we be doing better? Or we made a huge mistake and we want to be better. I mean, I think honestly, that's really like a satisfying client to work with because there is an appetite for change. And maybe they've learned a lesson the hard way. Um, and that means then that they are in a listening mode. You know, they're in a learning mode. They're in a doing mode. They, you know, they want to learn everything they can. And if anything, they want to do something faster than they should so that they can get in place. And we have to sort of slow them down and say, Hey, let's build this right. Let's not just do the window dressing. Let's not just check the box. Let's not just do unconscious bias training and nothing else. Like, Pride should be every day of the year. All these yeah. cultural celebrations, you know, I, my friends are like, yeah, I'm a black woman like every day, 360 right. days a year, you know, not just, uh, just about. Yeah. yeah. So how do we weave that into business as usual um, when there's so many competing priorities and so much mm-hmm. change? And that's that's a great question. It just needs to be a priority and thought of as such. And we're not quite there yet. Yeah. Well, you're helping us get there. And want to switch gears a little bit to talking about money as an entrepreneur, Jennifer, and you, you wear so many hats, you run your own consultancy, you're a speaker, you are an author, a podcast host. And, and I'm just wondering, you know, just like um, perhaps other guests on this show that have developed, um, clear personal brands. How did you evolve? How did you sort of evolve into your current 
niche? And how did you support yourself as you were building this company? Because I would imagine that, you know, there were ups and downs. And are there any stories of in particular that you'd like to share that were really, for you, um, very meaningful? Mm, oh my gosh, there's never enough time. <laughs> there's so many stories. Uh, how I supported myself into this work, um, I got very lucky in the early days by getting a, a big client when I first started. And um, what I did with every extra dollar that I had, I had no team at the time, I turned around and invested it in one person and then two people and then three people. So I often say, um, you know, like the E-Myth points out, which I love that book, um, we need to work on the business and not in the business if you want to grow. And so for me, I took everything I possibly could, even if it meant not paying myself, and plowed it into the people that could help me and that had the skill sets that I didn't have. And for me, that's operations and finance primarily, like anything that has to do with process, because I'm kind of the, the upfront salesperson, consultant, SME. So I built the company that way and I learned a lot. But I've always been very clear that there are certain things I don't know how to, I don't need to know how to do because there's other things that I need to go and focus on that I do best so that I can grow the company so the company can grow. Um, so that was one decision I made and it was tough because, you know, who wants to, who wants to give up any kind of funding? Um, being an entrepreneur is expensive. I've taken out second mortgages several times. I've, um, I would really recommend you get a, a credit facility, like a line of credit, particularly when your business is looking good. You want to apply for that when, you know, your numbers look fabulous and um, for that rainy day. And so that was something I didn't know. And somebody had to advise me to say, don't you have a line of credit? You know, you're going to need that for cash flow. And, you know, lo and behold, as your team grows, there are going to be um, peaks and valleys in terms of cash flow, particularly with corporate clients who sometimes don't pay for 60 days or even 90 days. And meanwhile, you have a team that you need to pay. So cash flow is like an art <laughs> for business yes. owner. Ask anybody. This is like what keeps us up I have at a night. cash flow Excel spreadsheet that yeah. I update at all times. <laughs> totally. <laughs> for that reason, people don't exactly. pay you when they're supposed to. Well, that is true. And so, yeah. So those are some things I did. Um, I've always invested so much in marketing, uh, probably way more like dollar for dollar than a lot of my competitors. I enjoy marketing. You know, it's uh, to me, marketing and sales aren't, aren't dirty words. So I, I enjoy them. I'm, you know, happy to put our thought leadership out there in the world. And, and that does take a lot of investment. You know, I have a whole team that just is dedicated to that marketing piece. But I might also say the investment in a book is really, really a game changer. Um, it's been huge for me. I mean, I wasn't an author, but I was a consultant with a consulting team. But people didn't really know me. And I think it absolutely just catapulted our image and our reputation forward. So I would, particularly for marginalized or underrepresented founders and, and voices out there, your story is so important to be told, you know? And so I'd say we need more voices like that. We need more representation on the bookshelves. We need more representation in TED Talks and podcasters and uh, keynote speakers who are at the top of the of that sort of keynote roster in terms of fees, like we really, really need to diversify all of these channels. And so, you know, if you're listening to this and you 
feel like you have a book in you and you could be a TED speaker someday, you know, really think about like the importance of that, not just for you, but for your economic future and also for that uh, legacy piece that you could be providing. Yes. Be in control of your content and the barriers to entry really are not there anymore. I mean, you can publish a book on your own. You can start a podcast on your own. Not sure if you can get a TED Talk on your own, but you can do a TEDx. (laughs) Yes, you can do TEDx. And you can start your own TEDx. You could (laughs) apply to have TEDx come to your town. So you can really take the initiative and not wait for these opportunities. Um, One other question, Jennifer, about money, and this is a question that we are asking guests in partnership with our sponsor, Chase, and that is, what is something that you practice? You talked about being really on top of your cash flow, the line of credit. That's, That's definitely one thing that could fall under this category. But another thing perhaps that you do, you practice that helps to build financial security for yourself and maybe business aside, but you, Jennifer, what's something that you do with your money that gives you a sense of security? Mm, That's such an interesting question. Uh, I, let's see, let's see, let's see. Well, I think I think no matter what, at the end of the day, whether I have a company, uh, whether I don't someday, because, you know, things, life changes, et cetera, you know, I think I always keep an eye on myself as um, an asset, you know, and building that thought leadership and that voice and uh, a point of view, which is so important to be a thought leader. Um, And then the books and the podcasts and the other ways that, I'm making a name for myself, like separate and apart from being a consultant, which is what I started as and which is the kind of company I have and the team I have of consultants now. But and that was that was my origin story. But I think we've got to be we've got to evolve um, in some some cases past what we originally did, you know, past our technical knowledge that got us into the field in the first place and think about how can I create this sort of um, undeniable drumbeat of not of knowledge given generously. Um, we, we give a lot out into the world. You know, I've written papers and articles and, um, I've always wanted to sort of be generous in the market, hoping to change the field, hoping to equip people with knowledge that will help them change the field and keep them inspired. So I do think if you have this attitude of giving and then you keep focused on at the end of the day, what is your point of view? And if you can find a niche that really resonates and that has a long-term prospect to it, um, a long runway to it, like something that's going to be relevant for a really long time, that's very future focused, you know, you will always have something to work with. You'll always have something you can be writing about, speaking about. Um, you know, I think about the future of work. You know, I think about how inclusiveness will inform that and it will become more and more important. So when I look ahead, I think I think this topic is actually going to accelerate. And if I can be that one of the leading voices on it and in it, that is, it feels like a good level of security for me. Um, and that's not like a financial answer, I suppose. Um, always make sure to pay yourself. <laughs> I know yeah. I said earlier, no. like, you know, yeah. you can skip payments, you know, if you're building your team and you can do it for strategic moments and th- that just needs to be a conscious choice. But, but make sure that you're also putting all your money away for your savings. You're trying to put money in your retirement account. Um, you're taking care of yourself. Um, and if you need to get lean and fire people that you just hired, like, you know, th- those are things you may need to do. And believe me, it's heartbreaking, but you will survive. And what what it may feel like is your business expands and contracts 
and then expands again and contracts again. And, you know, I've gone through many cycles of that. And I'm here to say it's you survive it, um, but make sure you keep your footprint light so you don't have office space if you don't need it. You have 1099 talent working for you that is sort of, you know, you know, using, utilizing folks when you, when, and if you need them. So, you know, really think about, um, running a business is, is gotta be really flexible and you want to give yourself every chance to survive because if you don't survive, then you're not creating those jobs for anyone in the future, you know, put your oxygen mask on first. That's right. Take care of yourself and know that, um, you, if you have to come back to just you, there's something you can sell. And that that is a viable living for you and no one else. I think that's always kind of the um, the place that you should always be able to come back to. Mm-hmm. Well, there's an expression. You can make money from what you do and also from what you know. And we sometimes skip mm-hmm. that one revenue stream. We just make money from what we do. But what you do evokes so much talent, learning, unique skills, experiences that those also are monetizable, right? So thinking along those terms, I think expanding your your income potential in that way is, is a really great way to think about your career and your approach to making a living. I love that. What you know is the thought leader piece. Yes. And I think as particularly for women, um, claiming that thought leader mantle may feel a bit onerous or intimidating or like something that you can't claim. It's like you have to give yourself permission to say, well, yes, I actually am paid for what I know. It's not just what I know how to do. That's a really important flip and mindset shift that I think particularly is particularly gendered, I would say. Mm -hmm. So just be aware, you know, if you're listening to this and you feel you're playing small or you feel you have more potential than you're utilizing, maybe something to explore is like, what could you know? What do you already know that you could monetize? And how are you feeding your knowledge and building your knowledge? So, you know, that that's what people do pay for. They pay us all the time for what we know at my company because we know what's happening across a whole bunch of companies. And so when company, when they come to us and they say, well, what are they doing? What are they doing? And how should we do it? And how have you seen it happen before? That's all knowledge, you know, and um, that's valuable. So really, you know, get creative. And when you think about what you can actually quote unquote sell, it doesn't have to be something so tangible. Jennifer Brown, thank you. The book is Inclusion, Diversity, the New Workplace and the Will to Change. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You can learn more about Jennifer on her website at jenniferbrownconsulting.com. She's also on Instagram at jenniferbrownspeaks. And the book again is called Inclusion, Diversity, the New Workplace and the Will to Change. Thanks for tuning in everybody. And I hope your day is so money.